Previously on The Dropout, Elizabeth Starr was fading fast after reporting by the Wall Street Journal's John Kerry Rue chronicled bombshell after bombshell about Theranos. Once we published the story, it was pretty much bulletproof, and eventually uh, everything that we'd written was proven right. The cracks were beginning to show, but ever-defiant Elizabeth wasn't giving up. She rallied her troops. F*** you, Kerry Rue, is what we chanted. I joined in kind of like tongue-in-cheek and went on Jim Cramer's mad money to make her case. This is what happens when you work to change things. First they think you're crazy, then they fight you, and then all of a sudden you change the world. But Elizabeth's house of cards was finally about to collapse. From ABC Radio and Nightline, this is The Dropout, episode five the downfall. In May 2016, things were not looking good for Elizabeth Holmes. Theranos was doing triage. The president and COO, Sonny Balwani, was leaving the company. Theranos said they were restructuring and he was going to retire. According to this deposition with Elizabeth's brother, Christian Holmes, Sonny wasn't just breaking up with Theranos. Did your sister and Mr. Balwani stop living together before or after he left Theranos? I don't know his exact termination date, but it was right around the same time. Did you think at the time that there was a connection between him leaving the company and him and your sister stopping living together? In the sense that there was an overhaul in the management structure and there was a reflection of that in her personal life, sure. Elizabeth says it was mutual. Once we started working together, it was... uh, very intense working relationship and the sort of romantic piece that was there at the very beginning died. I I don't think it happened in one moment, uh, but it was very clear that we were colleagues. The relationship was over, and so was the adoring publicity. It had been replaced with intense skepticism. Questions about whether Theranos' technology really worked had gone mainstream. But even with all of this happening, Venture capitalist Tim Draper, the guy who cut Elizabeth her first million-dollar check, passionately defended her when he came to speak with me at ABC News in mid-2016. I will say there are some very powerful people that are going after that poor woman, and she is doing such a great thing for humanity, and we should all support her. Remember, this was more than half a year after John Kerry Rue's first explosive article ran in the Wall Street Journal. Sitting in my cluttered office, Tim told me most everyone else had it terribly wrong. She is changing healthcare as we know it. With two drops of blood, she runs a test through a microfluidic chamber, and it runs 50 different blood tests. So you only need two drops of blood. Have you seen the technology? Oh, yeah. You've seen it. it. I've done it. You've done it. I've done it. And there were 50 tests run on 50 one tests drop on of blood. Two drops of blood. Two drops of blood. Two drops of blood. 50 tests. 50 tests. Two drops of blood from your fingers. Yes. And it worked beautifully. It worked. Yeah, it worked beautifully. She's got competitors who are now totally threatened because she's coming at them. Huge industries are going to be forced to change because of this business. And they have lots of uh, relationships with people in government and I mean, boy, I, you know, we have mothers who come in in tears saying, thank you so much for your, you know, what, you're, what you've done for our 
child. There's a very well-respected medical body that's suggesting that Elizabeth Holmes should step down. There's claims that the technology, the very secret technology, doesn't actually do what it's meant to do. But it does. I, I believe the company will go through whatever it is, whatever the tests need to be done, and they'll come out the other end, and we're going to be so much better off for this. You've seen the tests. You've seen the secret. You've had it done. I've had it done. At this point in the conversation, Tim held his finger in the air and gave it a little pat, indicating where the blood was drawn. Do you trust the results? Um, yeah, I do. Yeah, they came up similar to the test results that I had in the doctor's office. Similar? Similar. Meaning yeah. what? The same. I mean, well, everything's a little range, you know, but they were all similar to what these other tests were. The interview ended with me telling Tim I wanted to see the technology with my own eyes. So you're backing Elizabeth Holmes today, no matter what? Well, yeah. I mean, I backed her. I'm in it for the game. And what about Elizabeth's earliest cheerleader, Stanford professor Channing Robertson? Was he still backing her too? Reed Cathrine, the attorney who sued Theranos on behalf of several investors, may shed some light on his position now. Uh, as, of, as of his deposition, he was still a believer in the company. I mean, of all the people in the world who would know, this is the guy that should have known, that sh would have known the right questions to ask. Reed thinks there might be other motivations at play here. She compensated him very, very well. 2013 through 2017, she paid him more than anyone else at the company, from what I can tell. She paid him 500000 a year for those four years to the tune of $2 million. And what was he doing there? Uh, from what I can tell, not much, but adding credibility. For what it's worth, Tim Draper and Channing Robertson seemed to occupy a tiny club of supporters. The month after my interview with Tim, in June 2016, Walgreens terminated its contract with Theranos and eventually sued for $140 million, claiming the company failed to meet the most basic quality standards and legal requirements of the contract. The two companies settled for an undisclosed sum with no finding or admission of liability. But investors and patients were also bringing their own class action lawsuits. And most disturbingly, Theranos had to void tens of thousands of its test results. Regulators determined Theranos's quality controls were so deficient, they posed an immediate risk to patient health and safety. But shockingly, Theranos still managed to keep its doors open as a business. After multiple attempts to speak with Elizabeth, my producer Taylor Dunn and I went to visit the headquarters in Palo Alto in the summer of 2017. It's a large, attractive office building with wraparound windows on a tree-lined highway a couple minutes from Stanford. We're in Palo Alto on this beautiful road. We got there late in the afternoon. There were a handful of cars in the lot. 1701 Page Mill Road. I walked up to the front door. American flags out front. And this right here is the front entrance. So, looks like security. Oh, hi, yes, we're here with ABC News. This is where Theranos is headquartered, right? This is Theranos headquarters. All right, we were just taking a look around. 
Yeah, but you're filming. That's not taking a look around. The only people we spotted that day inside the building were security guards. No sign of Elizabeth. We would come to learn that during this very visit, Elizabeth and her now ex-partner Sonny were being investigated by the Securities and Exchange Commission. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? I do. Thank you. Uh, can you please state and spell your full name for the record? Uh, first name is Ramesh, R-A-M-E-S-H. Last name is Balwani, B-A-L-W-A-N-I. Most people call me Sunny. In the summer of 2017, everything was on the table. The claims they'd made to patients, to investors, and to the public. Through the whole debacle, Elizabeth had always presented herself in profiles and interviews, like this one with Forbes, as a visionary, someone with all the answers. We are the only lab company that is actually really focused on leading with transparency. But under oath, she kept repeating the same thing. I, I don't know specifically. I'm over. Sure. Uh, I'm not sure. And over. Um, I, I don't know exactly. I, and over. I, I just don't know. In fact, we counted. More than 660 times Elizabeth told investigators she didn't know or wasn't sure or couldn't remember something. I just have to laugh. Like, this is somebody who definitely was not uninformed in the company. Former Theranos employee Michael Craig was astounded when we shared this part of the deposition with him. There are a number of text messages on this page uh, from October 16th, 2015. Um, so if you look at the third text message down from Mr. Balwani, he says, okay, WAG freaking out, lack of transparency. And do you understand that WAG is Walgreens? Yes. What did you understand him to be referring to here? I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't, I'm sorry, I don't remember my text exchanges with Sonny from years ago. October 16th, 2015. That's one day after John Kerry Rue's first jaw-dropping article ran in the Wall Street Journal. And as Sonny puts it, Walgreens was freaking out over lack of transparency. Do you think there's any chance that Elizabeth couldn't remember that on that day about that client? Not unless she had serious head trauma. That was everything. That was the entirety, you know, that was, they were, they were their one customer. It's pretty convenient not to be able to remember something like that under oath. As it turns out, Theranos had never told the drugstore giant about the surprise FDA inspection on its labs. Instead, months after it happened, Walgreens was reading about it in the papers. Were you not being transparent with Walgreens previously? We did not tell them uh, that the FDA had come to inspect because we thought we were to try to successfully resolve the engagement with FDA uh, before communicating about it. Uh, Over the course of eight hours of testimony a day, for three full days, Elizabeth's carefully crafted narrative began to unravel. So much of what she had been spreading for years, it just wasn't true. Like that star-making fortune cover story by Roger Parloff, it had run in June 2014. Investigators went through it point by point. Is the statement uh, that Theranos currently offers more than 200 and is ramping up to offer more than 1,000 of the most commonly ordered blood diagnostic tests, all without the need for syringes, was that statement correct? Reading it now, I don't think it is. That article had played a big role in legitimizing Elizabeth. 
The profile said Theranos, quote, does not buy any analyzers from third parties. Here's what Sonny had to say about that in his deposition. Was that a true statement in June of 2014? No, it was not. Did you tell Mr. Karloff that most of Theranos' tests were run on commercially available analyzers? I, I don't think so. Were you worried that if Mr. Karloff wrote an article mentioning only Theranos' manufactured devices, that people would be given an inaccurate impression of how Theranos was condu- conducting its patient testing? Not at the time, because at the time I thought it was all about the aspiration and the vision. Looking back at it now, I absolutely wish we had handled our communications differently. What's also a surprise is who pitched the story in the first place. Elizabeth says it was David Boyce, Theranos' board member and the company's hotshot attorney, the master litigator who once represented Harvey Weinstein. Did you reach out to Mr. Parlock? Um, my understanding is David reached out to him. David Boyce, yes. David's PR person told me that it was going to be a cover story and that it was going to be a big piece on Theranos. Hello? Roger. Hi, it's Rebecca Jarvis with ABC News. How are you? I recently spoke to the reporter, Roger Parloff, about what happened. When you first had contact with David Boyce on this story, was that your first contact with David Boyce ever, or had you spoken to him previously on other stories? I'd spoken with him previously. Uh, he, he was on an American Airlines antitrust case, uh, the Microsoft case, the Napster case. Roger has been covering the legal beat for years for the New York Times, ProPublica, Yahoo Finance, New York Magazine, and Fortune. He's written for all of them. The Theranos-David Boys connection intrigued him. So this was not your first time working with him as a source. That's right. But Roger says it was Elizabeth, her monumental mission, that convinced him to pursue it. You know, it was this... uh very young woman, the dropout. She had founded the company. She was supposed to be a great inventor. Everything about it was very exciting. So he arranged to take a trip out to Theranos. And then I spent four days out there, and uh, about three of them I was speaking to her. From the way Elizabeth makes it sound in her deposition, David Boyce played a sizable role in helping Roger with the article. So besides sitting for an interview with Mr. Parloff and providing documents to him, did you do anything else to help Mr. Parloff understand the company and and write his article? He spent a lot of time with David and and David's PR person. Uh, But that's not how Roger remembers it. Who did you have the most interaction with as you were putting this story together? It sounds like Elizabeth. Yes, and there were multiple phone calls uh, between us after that, multiple emails. And was David present during any of your conversations with Elizabeth Holmes? No. Did you go through the facts of the story with David Boys or his PR person? No, I wouldn't have gone through it with them. I, You know, there's a fact-checking process, and I went through that with Elizabeth. Were any of the facts that were stated in the article things that Elizabeth directly contradicted in your conversation? No. They never got back to me and said, there's a mistake here. On the contrary, George Schultz sent me a, a note saying how much he appreciated the fact that I had spent so much time and gotten it right. Again, the article ran in June 2014. After John Kerry Roos' first article ran in the Wall Street Journal in October 2015, 
Roger went back to Theranos. I called up and wanted to do some sort of correction, some sort of mea culpa. The PR person I spoke to at that time said, you know, I reread your story. You don't have to change a thing. Everything's, everything's just exactly right the way it is. But Roger kept pressing. And then eventually they gave me this statement acknowledging that certain things were inaccurate. They tried to talk me into thinking, well, if you, if you fiddle with the punctuation, <laughs> so I said, well, I can't fiddle with the punctuation. I think it's important to say here, Roger was very hesitant to speak about all of this. Even though it happened years ago, even though other journalists wrote similar pieces, the whole thing still troubles him. I'm just curious as a journalist, has this changed the way that you cover stories? Look, I, I made a lot of mistakes. Yes, I, I would say it has. You know, you need to be more rigid at points. I think I, 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 I got caught up in this woman's story. I believed in her. I, you know, I began to drink the Kool-Aid. So, uh, yeah, I've learned some rough lessons. Is there a particular question you wish that you asked Elizabeth that you didn't? I think I asked the right questions. I, I, I just got the wrong answers. That's what I think at this point. I mean, I do think I was culpable and I was credulous uh, I, and I was taken with her story and I didn't pursue certain leads that I could have. But I think I asked her the right questions. By the time SEC investigators got to Elizabeth and Sonny, Roger Parloff had already published a mea culpa and a correction in Fortune. But the damage was done. This and so many other stories like it had made the rounds, potentially convincing patients to take Theranos tests and doctors to recommend them. Theranos had even used the article to pitch investors like Rupert Murdoch, who put $125 million into the company. Elizabeth gave him a copy during their first meeting at his ranch near San Francisco. Were you aware that this article was included in Mr. Murdoch's finder? I am now. I don't know at the time it was. Were you aware that this article was included in binders and materials that Theranos sent to other investors? I don't know. There are lots of other important revelations in the depositions where the truth doesn't match what Theranos was peddling at the time. Like those claims Elizabeth made that her signature technology could run any test. So our work is in making lab data accessible. And we've done that by making it possible to do any lab test from a tiny drop of blood from a finger. How many tests could it run at that time in 2010? Um, I, I, I don't know exactly what the number was. I think there was probably um, tens of, of tests. Okay. So when you say tens of tests, you mean something less than 100? Yes. Just three months before Theranos started rolling out its technology at Walgreens in July 2013, Elizabeth was getting emails from employees saying their demo tests were returning loads of inaccuracies. Theranos was just leaving them off the official reports. My understanding generally is if anyone who was reviewing the data had a concern about the data, don't include it on the report. But if some of the results came back incorrect, how did you know that the results that you did report were correct? I, I, I don't know. I didn't oversee the labs. I trusted my team to make those decisions. Then, 
In December 2014, as Elizabeth was hyping plans to expand into thousands more Walgreens, on the outside sharing her grand vision at a fortune conference. Are you able to say, like, in five years, how many Walgreens you might be in? Sure. So there's, there's 8,200 Walgreens nationally. Mm-hmm. That would put us within five miles of every American's home. Uh-huh. And that's what we're working to do. On the inside, the deal was actually falling apart. Only three weeks before her speech, Elizabeth had received this Mayday text from Sonny. And he says, we can't scale with WAG. And WAG, you understand, is Walgreens? Yes. Okay. In the end, Theranos never made it into those 8,200 Walgreens stores. In fact, it wasn't even close. And how many stores, what was the uh, maximum number of stores that you were aware Theranos services had been rolled out to? I think it was 41. Uh, why did it stop at 41? Um, we couldn't make the relationship successful beyond that. There were also those dramatic claims Elizabeth had allegedly made to Walgreens and her board. She finally had to come clean. Was Theranos' technology deployed in emergency rooms, hospitals, and provider offices? No. Was a Theranos manufacturer device ever deployed uh, in the battlefield? No. Was it ever deployed in a medevac helicopter? No. Even with so many of her replies and that near whisper, listening to the testimony, you can still hear the divide between what Elizabeth had been saying for years versus what was real. In so many instances, there was no distinction between aspiration and reality. The government had stocked its arsenal. Again, here's attorney Reed Catherine, who sued Theranos on behalf of investors. Do you think it's humanly possible that Elizabeth Holmes wasn't aware of what was going on at her company? No. No. She, she knew what was going on. Uh, Sonny and Elizabeth, they knew it was being run on 30-party machines. They knew it wasn't validated for use on, on consumers or use on patients. I mean, they knew. That's unquestionable. Anything you want to say? Anything at all you want to say? On March 14, 2018, the SEC charged Elizabeth and Sonny with running an elaborate, years-long fraud in which they exaggerated or made false statements about the company's technology, their business, and their financial performance. The news sent shockwaves through the financial media. Uh, Theranos CEO Elizabeth Holmes charged with massive fraud by the SEC after being accused of defrauding investors. Remember, accusing her of engaging in a multi-million dollar scheme to defraud investors. Sonny pleaded not guilty. Well, he pled not guilty because he is not guilty. And vowed to fight the charges. And, you know, we intend, as I said, to vigorously contest the charges. Mr. Elizabeth settled. She was stripped of her control of Theranos, banned from serving as an officer or director of a public company for 10 years, and agreed to pay a $500,000 fine. But she didn't admit any wrongdoing. Criminal charges from the Department of Justice followed months later. Welcome back, everybody. Blood testing firm Theranos is formally dissolving, but that is not the final chapter in this story. The founder, Elizabeth Holmes, and another former executive await a criminal trial. They face up to 20 years in prison. Most of the company's employees worked their last day on.
Elizabeth and Sonny both pleaded not guilty. Elizabeth Holmes is stepping down as the chief executive officer. By September 2018, the company was officially out of business, but the story was far from over. Obviously, we wanted to speak with Elizabeth and Sonny. But remember, Elizabeth and her counsel didn't respond to our repeated requests for an interview. Sonny wouldn't speak to us either, but his attorney agreed to join us for his first in-depth conversation. If you were going to give him a grade on the job he did at Theranos, what would that grade be? Um, I would give him an A-plus for dedication and effort. Um, but obviously, when we look at this after the fact, and there's been a business failure, and, you know, Mr. Balwani is very sorry about that, that's not the same as fraud. That's Jeff Cooper-Smith. He's a partner with Davis Wright Tremaine. Jeff's a veteran trial attorney and former federal prosecutor. We met in a cramped conference room at ABC News and sat face-to-face in folding chairs. In his account, we've misunderstood Sonny Balwani. Sonny Balwani is an extraordinary person. He was born in Pakistan uh, to a Hindu family, and eventually the family had to move to India because um, being a Hindu in a mostly all-Muslim country of Pakistan was very difficult. Um, when he got to the United States, he literally kissed the ground and studied at the University of Texas, where he uh, got a degree in computer science. Um, everything he ever uh, did in his life, he got through earning it, through incredibly hard work. So the most hard, hardest working person pretty much I've ever met. So he joins the company in 2009 as COO and president. That's correct. His role was really to be an operational manager. And Mr. Balwani also oversaw the lab operations themselves. He oversaw the lab operations from a business perspective. He, he wasn't a lab scientist. Because his background wasn't lab-based or scientific. That, that's correct, and he knew that. And that's why he hired um, PhDs and MDs to make sure the lab was running scientifically. Jeff says Sonny originally got involved in Theranos for some very personal reasons. But maybe not the ones you'd expect. His father tragically died at a pretty young age of a heart attack in India. And Mr. Walwani felt that the, me- the health care was not what it should have been, that if he had had the right test, if they had diagnosed the problem, his dad might still be alive today. But remember, when Sonny joined the company, he and Elizabeth had already been dating for a number of years. Why didn't they disclose that relationship to investors? I don't think that uh, investors um, would care one way or the other whether there was a relationship that it kept professional. Why did Mr. Balwani leave Theranos? You know, he had been wanting to leave for some time. Um, when he was working there, he worked 24-7. And it, I think there was a burnout factor, and it was time for him to move on. Does he feel in any way that he was duped by Elizabeth Holmes? No, that's not what is going on here. Uh, Mr. Balwani believed in Elizabeth Holmes and her vision for the company. He tried um, to execute that plan with her to make it a success. But no, he's not saying that he was duped. Does he hold her responsible for where everything stands today? No, they made mistakes along the way in executing a business plan. We heard in both Elizabeth and Sonny's depositions, Theranos was mostly relying on machines they'd bought from other companies to run tests. But Walgreens believed Theranos was using their own cutting-edge technology. In 2015, Theranos was using conventional lab machines to test blood samples. Why use a third-party product if you're charging for that cutting-edge technology? Right. Good question. So the concept was to collect the samples, 
from the Walgreens stores and transport them to the central lab where they'd be tested. But if you have lots of samples being collected from Walgreens stores and going to a central laboratory, you need machines that are going to have higher throughput. Machines from other companies. Right. But why wouldn't you tell Walgreens? I mean, Walgreens was Theranos's most important business partner at the time. Don't you think that Walgreens would have wanted to know what device you were using to process these samples? Uh, I am not aware that they were very focused on what hardware that we were using. Uh, did, did Theranos ever disclose to Walgreens what devices it was used, using to run uh, different um, test types? No, we would never do that. Why not? Well, this was, there was a lot of trade secret here. I think this was no secret that Theranos was doing traditional blood testing. Except for the fact that the advertising itself suggested you could have your tests done with a prick of blood. Well, I was wondering if you would take a blood test for us, which is one drop of blood. One drop? Bring it on. Well, that was, it, it never said that's the only way it would go. Regardless of which machines were running the tests, remember, loads of Theranos results just weren't accurate. In 2016, Theranos had to go back to doctors and patients and tell them tens of thousands of tests were voided. There are reports of inaccurate results for thyroid function, potassium levels, elevated quantities of prostate-specific antigen to suggest prostate cancer. How accurate was the Edison technology. Well, from Mr. Baumwanning's perspective, he had to rely on his scientists who were signing off on reports and doing quality control and proficiency testing to try to make sure there weren't mistakes. Are you suggesting then that it wasn't possible for Sonny Balwani to know whether the technology actually worked? I mean, The head of the laboratory? No, uh, he, of course it was possible for him to know, and he did think it worked because his scientific team was telling him it worked. And we've heard from some employees that the scientists were those who were most afraid of Sonny Belwani, those who were reporting to him their results. I just don't think that's accurate, Rebecca. Recall those scientists, like Erica Chung, told us Sonny angrily brushed off their concerns about quality control issues. Because their quality controls were failing at one point what seemed almost every day. And remember what Erica says happened when she raised the issues with Sonny. He just sort of lost it. And he's like, well, what makes you think that we have problems? I'm, I'm tired of people coming in here and starting fires where there are no fires. In an all-hands meeting, um, an employee told us that Sonny Balwani told every employee they should be prepared to show complete devotion and unmitigated loyalty to the company. And if they weren't prepared to do that, they should get the F out. Mr. Balwani was very passionate about Theranos and its technology, and he wanted it to succeed with all his heart. Mr. Balwani had his own mother tested at Theranos' lab, and not just for fun. She had a serious medical condition that required accurate information for her physician to make decisions about her care. Was she tested by any other lab company? I don't know the answer to that, but I know that Mr. Balwani um, tested her in Theranos. In January 2016, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, which regulates the lab testing industry, released a scathing report on Theranos. Immediate jeopardy. Your facility is not in compliance with all the conditions required for certification. The lab was shut down by the government. Wasn't that a sign that the technology was not accurate? You know, CMS came in in the harsh light of a media spotlight on Theranos and, and allegations by um, the Wall Street Journal that there was some fraud going on. Um, as it's turned out, 
a lot of the reporting in the Wall Street Journal it turned out to be completely false. Of course, this is a colossal claim. To suggest, quote, a lot of John Kerryrew's reporting in the Wall Street Journal turned out to be, quote, completely false after it's already been corroborated by multiple sources and even government regulators seems to be a particularly misleading statement. So what was Jeff's evidence for this? Well, for example, um, the Wall Street Journal report relies heavily on a particular employee named Tyler Schultz, who was George Schultz's grandson. We know from Mr. Schultz's testimony under oath that his claims about failures in Theranos' proficiency testing, he lied about that. He wasn't in a position to know what proficiency testing was going on. Nine days after my interview with Jeff Cooper Smith, his office emailed this clip from a deposition with Tyler. In it, Tyler's asked about an exchange he had with Theranos Vice President Dr. Daniel Young about proficiency testing data, or PT data. Tyler's essentially being asked whether he saw a problem or heard about it. Take a listen. And Dr. Young begins by saying, by the way, I'd also like to know if you have actually seen the PT data that you had mentioned for vitamin D or someone just mentioned them in passing. Can you uh, read the second sentence of your response to him? And I just heard about PT data in passing. I have not seen it. That was untrue, correct? Yeah, so that was not true. So you lied to Dr. Young when he asked you that question? Yes. Remember, as we heard in episode four, it was Erica who said she witnessed proficiency test problems firsthand. Theranos, she said, was cherry-picking the data. I would put up um, kind of error reporting sheets by the machines, and they would be taken down. Erica said a manager even warned her not to speak up. People didn't want to actually know the number of times that we were having issues, and it was probably because they were starting to realize we were having them so frequently. So she shared that information with Tyler. And Tyler, as you'll recall, said he took it to Elizabeth, along with a number of other issues he says he personally witnessed, hoping to make a difference and improve things at Theranos. I think at the end of the day, everyone was concerned that we weren't giving patients the right results. In addition to pointing out that Tyler didn't personally experience the proficiency testing problems with patient samples, Jeff Cooper Smith's publicist asked we include this part of Tyler's testimony. Did you graduate with distinction? No. You, you chuckled when I uh, asked that question. Why? Yeah, um, because my grades senior year were a lot worse than my grades the previous three years because I was taking so many classes and... I already had this job locked up at Theranos, so I, I decided to focus my attention elsewhere. So Tyler let his grades slip his senior year, but it's hard to see how any of this changes the central facts. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services came in and took a look. A number of governmental bodies took a look, and they found that all of these things Tyler Schultz and other employees said of the company were accurate. I think Mr. Balwani did everything he could to make sure that that laboratory was running as well as it could run. You're right that when CMS came in, in 2015, in the harsh light of the spotlight that had been uh, shown on Theranos, they found some deficiencies. But you're claiming that a employee of Theranos lied when in actuality, the regulators who came in and looked at his very claims found them to be true. I, I don't think it's his very claims. How can you claim that the technology is accurate when the company itself, Theranos, is withdrawing those results? Mr. Balwani, while he was there, was doing anything he could 
to make sure the testing was accurate. By hiring the very best people, Mr. Balwani also put in four and a half million dollars of his own money, that's cash, that he gave to the company in exchange for stock. He had opportunities to sell that stock to make a lot of money while Theranos was valued at a high level. He never sold even one share of stock because he believed in the long-term future of the company. It seems like a central component of your case is that Theranos was on the right track, and if they had enough time, they would have gotten it 100% right. I think eventually the company would have been a, a great success if it had been allowed to run. That's true. When it comes to our health, people want to know it's 100% accurate day one. They don't want to feel like the technology that they're using is going to work 10 years from now. They want to know that what's inside of a Walgreens or at their doctor's office can actually do what it says it will do. You know, Rebecca, of course that's true. I think, though, the unfortunate thing is that in our system of healthcare, there's mistakes that are made every day. There's no perfect answer. Back at Stanford, I asked Professor of Medicine Phyllis Gardner what she thought of the argument that the system's broken and getting an idea right takes time. There is this argument that she's trying to change the world and it's not easy to change the world. You're rolling your eyes. Oh, yeah. Why is that? Because of course it's not easy to change the world. Where did you get the notion you could even try it? There are people around me who are so brilliant. This is not brilliant. And it was just a lot of hubris. Potentially a great idea. A great idea? We could all have a great idea. We're going to have a car that flies tomorrow. That's a great idea, right? Or a one with square wheels that works. That's an interesting idea. The great ideas are a dime a dozen. I'm sorry to say, I think. But it's how you implement them. And it takes so much. While Jeff Coopersmith and Phyllis may not see eye to eye on this point, one thing is now certain. This case is going to trial. Yes, I think that it will definitely go to trial. On the next episode of The Dropout, an old friend from Elizabeth's past emerges. This is not the Elizabeth that I knew growing up. Can you imagine her in prison? Can I imagine Elizabeth? I can't imagine anybody that I know in prison. With Elizabeth facing up to 20 years in jail if convicted, what are the chances she actually serves time? I mean, so many people wind up in jail for such little things. This is not a little thing. Not only did they fool the investors, they fooled the media, they fooled patients, they fooled doctors. And former U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, Preet Bharara, weighs in. So on the one hand, it seems very obvious that there was a fraud, but in any white-collar case, you have to prove not only that the things happened, you have to prove what's in the person's mind. Plus, we'll find out what Elizabeth is up to now. I looked over and up at the bar table was Elizabeth Holmes, although she looked very different. As she shares some interesting personal news with a former employee. And I was completely, um, you know, taken by surprise. In our final episode, we'll explore what's happening with Elizabeth as she faces her legal reckoning and examine how this whole thing could have happened in the first place. It's really not about the money. Um, most of the time, it's about winning. A 
Elizabeth Holmes, Sonny Belwani, Christian Holmes, Channing Robertson, David Boyce, Tim Draper, and Rupert Murdoch did not respond or decline to comment for this podcast. Some material, including court depositions, were edited for clarity and time. The Dropout is written and produced by Taylor Dunn, Victoria Thompson, and me. Our editors are Chris Berube and Evan Viola, who also created our theme song. Our researchers are Victor Ordonez and Lane Wynn. Our artwork is by Teddy Blanks at Chips NY. The Dropout is a production of Nightline, ABC Radio, and ABC's Business Unit. For Nightline, Jenna Millman is the supervising producer and Stephen Baker is the executive producer. Eric Avram runs ABC's specialized units. Thanks to the team at ABC Radio and to the Wall Street Journal's John Carreyrou, author of Bad Blood, whose investigative reporting first exposed this remarkable story. Be sure to subscribe to the Dropout Podcast, and if you like what you heard, leave us a review. Listen to new episodes every Wednesday.